0: All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to a new book. We're going to be in 1 Samuel, and we'll be here until Jesus comes. Guarantee it. I'll tell you. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, great books. If you're experiencing warfare, have experienced warfare, will be experiencing warfare, Samuel's a good book to teach us how to battle in the spiritual realm. Uh, oftentimes on Sunday mornings we're in a New Testament book we just finished the book of Ruth and we were in Judges on Wednesday night at the home Bible study and so as I prayed it was either going to be a New Testament book I was going to go back to a gospel or maybe do 1st 2nd Peter or something but the Lord just put 1st Samuel on my heart so some of you must be battling some of you must be uh, in need of some warfare preparation and so What a blessing to be able to go through. Awesome, awesome book. We're going to learn a lot. Title of the message this morning is, What Are You Waiting For? To Begin Worshiping the Lord. And I throw it out as a challenge because it's always the right time to do the right thing. And we are called to walk by faith. And God knows the struggle. God knows the difficulty. God knows the pain in your heart. God knows what you're going through. And in the midst of that, if you are walking by faith, Your posture is to be something, and you are to be looking to the Lord. He's got the end figured out from the beginning, and he knows right where you're at. And so we're going to learn through this first chapter, just as Hannah prays out and cries out to God and is extremely misunderstood, we're going to know that God knows exactly what she's going through, and God is not sadistic. He's not wishing pain upon her life for nothing, but he definitely wants to minister to her. Um, And so we'll see all of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Father, that you do give us ears to hear, eyes to see what your spirit says to the church this morning. Lord, we pray that you would take the words from your love letter, the Bible, Lord, and that you would speak them to us right where we find ourselves. And Lord, for many, we know that this is preparation for what uh, lies ahead. But for many as well, Lord, it is uh, exactly what we're going through. And we just pray, Father, that you would teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. So bless your word and bless this time as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So by way of introduction, we just left the book of Ruth. Right before that was the book of Judges. And if there was one scripture that was repeated three times in the book of Judges that pictured what the culture was like that scripture would be everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so if everyone is doing right in their own eyes, then they're not doing what's right in God's eyes. And so it's a godless time. Time Time-wise, we're looking at about 10th century B.C., about 1100 B.C. is the timeline that we're looking at here. And so Samuel will actually be the last of the judges in a series. And he will introduce the first monarchy in the, actually, the first and the second king in the uh, history of, of Israel. He, we're going to see Saul anointed and raised up, and then we'll see David, of course. And then Samuel is eventually going to go off the scenes. It's about four or six chapters before the book of 1 Samuel ends. And so the author of Samuel is be- believed to be Samuel, and then. Whoever takes it over from there, we're not sure. But ultimately, we know that the Word of God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God. And so whoever wrote it, it comes down to us by means of God, being the Word of God. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that it was written in Hebrew. And you know that about 600 BC, we find the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament written. And it wasn't until then that we actually have First and Second Samuel. Because we have 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 3rd Kings, and 4th Kings, and really it was Kings and Samuel. And when the Septuagint is written, then we have access to 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. So uh, Samuel was a godly man who ministered to the people in the difficult days of transition between the time of the judges and the rule of kings. And I find it interesting that as we read and we know the historical context of these people that live. These are people. These are human beings that lived during the time that they lived. And it's good for us to know a little bit of history so that we can understand that, hey, there's things that are similar in their culture that are similar in ours. And, and, and how should we conduct ourselves living in godless times in a godly, ungodly culture And so this gives us insight of how to live our lives and how to conduct ourselves. So let's go ahead and get into it. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, uh, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, or Zuf, an Ephraimite. Um, Now we're going to be introduced to this Elkanah, and... All of that lineage, and really all that lineage is telling us was he's a Levite. And we know that the Levites were given to God in ministry. Um, God would be their inheritance, if you will. Uh, But they did have places that they can stay. And Ephraim, when it says an Ephraimite, it's in Ephraim. It's not that he was from the tribe of Ephraim, because he's from the tribe of Levi. And that's important for us to know. Verse 2 says, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read of polygamy in the scriptures, I kind of scratch my head and I wonder, what, why does this guy have two wives? That's not a good thing. You will never see the scriptures condoning polygamy, and every time you see it in the scriptures, you see problems with it as well. But what it should do for us is it should alert us what was taking place in the culture that they're coming up in was poly- polygamy was an acceptable practice okay it deviated from god's will it deviated from god's perfect will and again you'll never see god condoning it you'll never see god blessing it you'll always see problems as a result of it and so we can sit judging here in this time and space that we live but i think instead What we should do is We should extract ourselves If you will And say okay If there's something That was going on back then In their culture That they did That was against God I wonder if there's something That we're doing in our culture That is against God Just because our culture Accepts it Or our culture Doesn't frown upon it But yet Hmm I wonder if there's something That we can relate to that And then address it from that and and I think there's tons of stuff um, I can share, but I'll just let you I'll let your mind wander But there's plenty of stuff, trust me In our culture that we find acceptable Because the culture says it's okay But it doesn't please God And so ask God personally Lord, is there something in my life That you would like to address That you would like to get a hold of That you would like to shine some light on so that I walk in holiness, so that I walk in the fear of the Lord and the reverence of God, forgetting what the culture finds acceptable, forgetting what the culture says about any given situation or circumstance. So we'll leave it at that. And so this guy, Elkanah, has two wives. One of them is barren, has no children. The other one has multiple kids. She's a baby shooting factory, uh, let's call her. So that's Penina. Verse 3 says, this man went up from from his city yearly... To worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Um, The means of introducing Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are only for a point of reference that Elkanah, in comparison to the priests' sons, were holy. We're going to see in chapter 2 next time that his sons were wicked. They were wretched. They were miserable. They were rancid. They were messed up serving in the temple, serving God, and yet taking advantage of things that they shouldn't have done. And so the only reason, again, they're mentioned here is to show that Elkanah, in contrast, was a godly man, that he feared the Lord, that he looked to the Lord, that he looked to glorify the Lord with his life. Verse 4, And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so we see it repeated twice, do we not? The Lord closed her womb. We need to recognize that our circumstances are tailor-made for us. It doesn't mean that God is sadistic. It doesn't mean that God wishes pain in our lives, but God will use the pain in our lives to bring us to the place that he wants us to come so that then he can do a work that's greater than any individual or the individual parts of that work. Don Stewart said he, Pastor Don Stewart, he said he only had one original thought in his life, and he said this. He said, if God is doing a big work in the world, best believe that God is doing a lot of little works in the world. So you look at the time that Hannah is coming up and she's in a godless culture where even the sons of the priests are doing that which is wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so here's Hannah coming from a godly family, family, a godly heritage and she's looking to the Lord and she's in bitterness of soul. She's going through a very, very difficult time in her life but she's looking to the Lord. We're going to see that nobody understands Hannah. We're going to see that it's, it's very difficult for Hannah because she really has no one to turn to but God at this time. And that's a good thing. It's not the worst thing in the world, right? She has God. But it's kind of neat when we have individuals that we can go to. Go to. And so God is now looking at the end of the judges. Samuel's going to be the last judge in the line of judges. He's going to raise up prophets And he's going to have Samuel be that prophet that anoints the first king, first two kings in the nation of Israel. And so God is desiring to do something in the life of his children as a whole, and when God is going to do a work, he's always looking for a man or a woman to do that work through. And we're going to see that Hannah is prepared, or being prepared for that work. And so it is the Lord that has closed her womb. Barrenness in this culture was a curse and not a curse from God, but it was looked upon as a curse But remember that God is getting her to a place that she wouldn't arrive at Had she not been going through this And so God is going to use the pain in her life God is going to use the difficulty in her life to do something greater than her And so that's important for us to know because do you want to be used by God? Do you care what God desires in this world? Is it more important your life and your comfort, or are you willing to submit to the one that bought you, to the one that paid for you out of the slave market? And so you became a slave from a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness, according to Romans. And so we can resist the will of God, we can hold God back. And we could say, Lord, Lord, I just want my comfort. I just want my things. I just want my life to go smooth. Well, on this side of eternity, you're asking for something that's not going to happen anyways. And so you're being unrealistic. Even the people of the world don't have a carefree life. Guess what? They get cancer. They go through divorce. They have drug problems and alcohol problems and difficulties. So we're asking for something that's unrealistic. Verse 7 says, so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. So here's Hannah in the house of the Lord, the place where she can be joyful, the place where she can be just excited about life. A double portion is offered in her name, and what does she do? She weeps, she doesn't eat, and she's being provoked. So even in a good place in your life, you can go through pain. And difficulty, verse eight. Then Alcana, her husband, said to her, "Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons?" I, I think Alcana is sincere, but he's missing the point entirely, as many husbands do. <laughs> apples and oranges. Apples and oranges. He—he he is a good husband. He's a godly husband. He's a great guy. He worships the Lord. He sacrifices to the Lord. But that's not the solution. She has no children. Husband, children, two different things. The desire to have children. The desire to be able to continue to proclaim the name. The desire for the Messiah to come through. I mean, all of these things is not a husband and children. Two different things. And so, uh, like many husbands, just not getting it. Verse 9, so Hannah... Arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. There it is. Every answered prayer is born in the heart of God. Why do we pray? Why do we pray in multitude? Why do we put prayer requests out? Let's call the prayer chain. Let's reach out to brothers and sisters who are walking with the Lord because we want this prayer answered. We do that so that we can cooperate with God. We do that so that we can see what God is doing. We don't pray to God to twist his arm and talk him into doing something that he's not going to do. We pray to get in line with what God is already doing with what God already wants to do. And so every answered prayer is born in the heart of God. And so she makes a vow. She's not told to make a vow. Nobody in scriptures is told To make a vow The the, the book of Ecclesiastes Says about vows That it's better To not make a vow And complete it Than to make a vow And not complete it And so when we make a vow What's a vow A promise to God God I promise Sometimes out of desperation Is she desperate Yes Yes she is And God is going to grant her Her request Out of this desperate place And trust me We're in an entirely different place when we're desperate. Desperate and looking to the Lord is an awesome thing. Desperate and looking to the world, fodder for Satan. You're just a a tool in the hand of Satan if you're not careful. So look to the Lord in your desperation. According to Numbers chapter 6, what she's doing is she's making the vow of a Nazarite. And it was to include certain things. Number one, abstinence from any product uh, from a grapevine, signifying distance from all fleshly pleasures. Even though Samuel, her son, is going to be born under the tribe of Levi and he is already dedicated to the Lord for service, she is saying, I want to take it further. Lord, I want to take it further, I want to go deeper. I want to commit to you something that out of this desperate place, I'm willing to acknowledge I'm going to go further than what's required of me, than what's normal or expected. And that's what's taking place. The second thing, taking no part in any mourning for the dead, nor to come near a dead body, because the dead show the corruption of the fruit of sin also because the Nazarite had greater concerns than the ordinary joys and sorrows of life. And if you think about that, even in that simplicity, that simple thing of those who take a Nazarite vow don't mourn the way regular people mourn. They're more concerned about the things of God and the kingdom of God. Number three, never cutting the hair because it was a public, visible sign to others of the vow. And so these are the things that are gonna take place, not going near a dead body, not touching any part of the grape or anything that would be produced from the grape and the cutting of the hair, the outward visual sign that the Nazarite vow had be taken. And so there would be three in scripture, two in the Old Testament and one in the New, three individuals that from birth would take the vow of the Nazarite. We have Samuel here, Samson before him, And in the New Testament, John the Baptist. And so just interesting that from birth this would be taking place. She says, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. The child would be born a Levite, and being of that tribe would already be dedicated unto the Lord because God regarded the tribe of Levi as his own special possession. But the time of a Levite's special dedication to the Lord only lasted from the ages of 30 To 50. Numbers 4, 2, and 3 tell us that. Here Hannah was taking something that already belonged to the Lord in some sense and gave it again to the Lord in a greater way. For the whole life and in in a dedication of a Nazarite, which was a greater consecration than a Levite. Even so, we may be dedicated unto the Lord, but there is a greater dedication God wants from us. It would have been easy for Hannah to say, I don't need to dedicate my child to the Lord because he's already dedicated. But there was a deeper dedication to the Lord that the Lord was trying to draw out of Hannah. Is there a deeper dedication the Lord is trying to draw out of you? And you have to ask yourself that. Moving on in verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth Now, Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Hannah suffers being misunderstood by both her husband and her high priest. And I think it's great that our high priest doesn't misunderstand. On Wednesday night, we went through Hebrews chapter 4. Let me read you verses 14 through 16. The Bible says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we may be misunderstood from humanity, from godly leaders, from husbands or wives or friends, children, but we will never be misunderstood from the Lord. He knows how we got to where we are. He knows the pain of what we're going through. He knows everything. And what I love about the access that we have to God, it's a throne of grace to find grace to help in the time of need. Don't ever let anyone or anything keep you from running to the feet of your Savior. He's demonstrated His love for you and that while you were a sinner, He died for you and He's going to continue to love you in the midst of that relationship. So whatever keeps you from running to the feet of the Lord is not a good thing. Know that you always have access to God and His grace and this throne because of what Jesus did for you. And don't let anything hold you back from that, even when people don't understand. Verse 15, but Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. And so imagine what the culture is like for Eli, the priest, to think that somebody's showing up drunk to church. But I like her boldness. Hannah doesn't wince back. She doesn't mouse up. She says, no, I'm not drunk. And she does it respectfully. But I'm pouring my heart out to God. I'm in anguish of soul and spirit. Verse 17, then Eli answered and said, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. I think that's an important Thing that's taking place prophetically um, Eli is speaking does he know he's speaking prophetically I don't know But he's saying may your petition be granted and it is going to be granted She wants a baby and the Lord is going to give her a baby and so I was thinking about this yesterday The gifts that are given within the body structure within a local church Are so needed for the body to be uplifted and to be rejoicing and to just be able to move on How many of us, for whatever reason, are not using the gifts that God has given us? Have you ever thought that you may have the word that an individual is struggling with? You, you may have a word for somebody within the local body to be able to just be encouraged and blessed by. And so, if the Lord is ever putting something on your heart to share with somebody, remember, giftedness is not holiness. God's gifts were given out, you have gifts. And you might think, "Wow, well, I'm not really ready to share. I mean, you don't know, you know my history and my background. I don't know of enough Bible verses or I ain't got enough time under my belt. Or-. No, no, none of that matters. None of that matters. The moment that you gave your life to God, those gifts are given to you. And so be faithful. If the Lord ever puts something on your heart, be bold enough to go to that person and say, hey, you know what? I don't, I don't know what this is about, but God is putting something on my heart to be able to share with you. Because the priest here shares with her, and it totally changes her disposition. The answer hasn't come, but the word came, and she's going to hold on to that word by faith, and it's going to change how she, how her, her behavior, how she conducts herself. Notice verse, what is that? I can't see eighteen. And she said, "Let your maidservant find favor in your sight." So the women went her, the woman went her way. And her face was no longer sad. No longer sad at the word from a man. But that man was being used by God to speak truth into her life. Word of wisdom is the application of knowledge. A word of knowledge is knowledge that you wouldn't know about a situation or someone that God wants to give. And so many in the church have that gift and they hold it for whatever reason. They sit on it for whatever reason. I love it when God gives me a word through a brother or a sister. And so that's so needed in the body of Christ. Don't neglect the gifts that God has given. Verse 19, Then they arose in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. What she says In reference to the name of Samuel, they sound the same in Hebrew, and she's just using a play on words. Basically, Samuel means uh, name of God, and so she's just using a play on words. Verse 21. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice of his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkana her husband said to her do what seems best to you wait until you have weaned him only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him she took him up with her three bull uh, with three bulls one ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh and the child was young Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. It's interesting, you see the contrast of verse 24 and 25. You see they take up three bulls and offer one completely as a sin offering that had to be totally consumed for it to take place. That's how we know it's a sin offering. And who are they offering it for? The baby Samuel. And so there are some who believe for whatever reason that babies are innocent All you have to do is have one or two to know that they're not. Yeah, they're little sinners. Sinners in need of a Savior. We love them. They bring so much joy, but little heathens, those things right there, yeah. So a full bull is being offered for what? Two to three-year-old kid as a sin offering. And it just shows us that we are born in sin. Verse 26 And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition when I asked of him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. Basically, I'm going to give him back, give back to God what belongs to him. So they worshiped the Lord there. This family is a godly family. Three times in this one chapter, it says that they went And they worship. Verse 3, verse 19, and verse 28. And God is desiring that we would live a life of worship. The title of the message is, What are you waiting for to begin worshiping the Lord? Maybe it's a word from the Lord. Maybe it's that word that you need to hear from the Lord. But ultimately, you want to be on the other side of the answer to your prayer. You want to be on this side, worshiping the Lord, looking to the Lord, knowing that the Lord knows your pain knowing that the Lord knows your anguish, knowing that the Lord knows your dilemma, knowing that God is fully aware and He's not allowing it for nothing. He's not doing it, again, to be sadistic. He's not just wanting to see pain in your life. He may very well be waiting for you to come to that place where He wants a deeper commitment from you. And only you know what that looks like. And only you can seek out how that is going to transpire in your life. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, as it relates to a life of worship, the Bible says, Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. As I study the scriptures, and I see in Romans chapter 1, there's what is called the spiral of degradation of a group of individuals who are going to suppress the truth or push down the truth. It's almost like la, la, la. They don't want to hear the truth. La, la, la. They do that and they suppress the truth and the Bible declares that it leaks out in their lives in two ways. It's manifest in two ways when we push the truth out of our life. Unrighteousness, sin against man, and ungodliness, sin against God. That is the result of pushing the truth away. And in that group of individuals, as you see the elements of their life lived out, you see an ingratitude in their lives. Romans chapter 1, it's right there. It says, nor were they thankful. Are you thankful for your life right now? Are you thankful for the difficulty right now? You see, because we have this idea that we can't be thankful until life is perfect. Life is smooth. The wrinkles are ironed out. The bumps are are removed. That's not life. That's not even reality. And I guarantee you that if it wasn't this, it would be something else. It would be something else. And so this trial, this difficulty, this pain, it's tailor-made for you. It's got your name on it. It was the Lord twice in the scripture who had caused Hannah to be barren. And that was painful for her. And that was a struggle for her. And that was a difficulty for her. But nonetheless, God waited her out until she came to that place where God wanted to do something greater than Hannah. He wanted to raise up an individual in that culture to be a godly leader. If you study the life of Samuel... He is included throughout the scriptures, not just in the book of 1 Samuel. He is talked about in the Psalms. He is included in the godliest of men in the scriptures over and over in the book of Chronicles. He is repeated uh, in the New Testament. He is included in the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. And so you see that God was desiring at this time in the world to do something special. And God takes ordinary folk like you and me to do an extraordinary work in the lives of individuals. And I believe that only on the other side of eternity are we going to have a true appreciation for this. I think on this side, I'm not really doing much. I just pray for people. It's not really much. Yeah. On the other side of eternity, yeah. Who's going to be in the mansion? We're going to see those individuals that prayed for Billy Graham. And Billy Graham's got his, you know, reward. And we ain't mad at Billy, right? But those women that prayed in the dungeon, those people that prayed for ministries, those people that just they did what God had called them to do in the time that they lived, faithful with what God has called you to do. And so praise God for your situation, as difficult as that might be. Thank God for your situation, as difficult as that might be, because it is uniquely yours, and God wants to do something deep in your heart in the midst of that. And this idea of a personal relationship with God, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. But you don't know the depth of a relationship with God until you go through deep things. And you have to look to the Lord in the midst of that to be able to come out of that on the other side and be like, Whoa. Leave it right now. I was thanking you back then. It was faith because it wasn't out of emotion. Trust me, it's pure faith. Lord, I just took you at your word. I just believed that you were going to be able to do something in that situation. And the overwhelming majority of the time, it's right here that the Lord wants to do something. It's right here. It's in me and my communion with Him and my relationship with Him that he wants to do something great. So I encourage you, what are you waiting for to begin worshiping the Lord? Begin to worship the Lord. Begin to acknowledge him for who he is. He can, in a moment, make your circumstances different. He doesn't want to do it like that. That's not what he's about. He wants to show you that in the midst of that pain, as you begin to look to him, call out on him, cry to him, watch him change you In the midst of that situation. And then you wouldn't trade it for the world. You wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy. But you wouldn't trade it for the world. Amen. Father we thank you so much. For your word. And Lord I know that there. are Those here Lord struggling. With circumstances. They're crying out to you Lord. They're wondering when you're going to show up. They're wondering when you're going to fix it or change it or do something. And so, Lord, I pray that they would begin to give you thanks in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the difficulty, acknowledging you as Lord, Lord of their life, Lord of their circumstances. And Lord, we just pray that you would use the body of Christ to speak those words of wisdom, Lord, those words of knowledge. And that, Lord, we would just be faithful with what you've called us to right where we're at. And so thank you for your word, Lord. and Continue to have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.